Happy New Year. Oh, y'all can do better than that. Happy New Year. Uh, our brother Stephen told us accurately that we have so, so many things to give God thanks for, right? So many things to be thankful for. And so, yeah, praise. Give God praise this morning. Thank you, Stephen, for that wonderful testimony. Uh, thank you, Precious, for uh, sharing with us as well. We praise God for your faithfulness with that family to share the gospel and to befriend them. And uh, where did Taco and Grace go? They slip out on me? Taco and Grace. Oh, yeah, y'all got the VIP seating over there. Taco, Grace, Amos, Isaiah. Thank y'all for leading us in worship this morning. We praise God for you this morning. Well, let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time. I'm Pastor T, one of the four pastors here at Anacostia River Church, and we're so glad that you have decided to worship with us this morning. We pray that you're encouraged and built up uh, in the most holy faith. Uh, we are, or have been, uh, in a series of sermons in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, don't turn there. We're doing something a little different this morning. I'll explain that in a second. But we do want to do our homework from last week. We've been memorizing 1 Peter, and last week we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Is there anybody who wants to recite those two verses for us this morning, or uh, all of chapter 2, or all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, up to verse 10? We got any takers this morning? Oh, come on. Uh, uh, come on, brother Josiah. Y'all encourage Josiah this morning. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Anybody else this morning? Come on, Crystal. Y'all encourage this beautiful lady right here. Here we go. Amen. 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 Anybody else? Okay, so listen. For the next five weeks, we're going to be doing a different study, which I'll tell you about in just a moment, right? So this next five weeks is a wonderful time to catch up, right, to sort of review chapter one, review chapter two, verses one to ten. So rather than fall behind, which would be my temptation, right, this is a time to sort of catch up and to stay up and to get really nail it down, okay? So I want to encourage that. So each week, we're still going to recite First Peter. So you, you come with whatever part you've got to recite and to share and to build the body up with. That's what we'll do, and let's just keep working on catching up so that in the sixth week, when we come back to First Peter, we all rocking, right? You with me? Mmm. Mmm. I know when people with me. You with me? All right, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll get into God's word for this morning. Father, the silence is deafening when heaven is quiet. Ironically, our heads are filled with noise. There's the clamor of social media. There are the talking heads of television. There are the busybodies and gossips next door and in the workplace. There are the nosy people trying to get into things. 
There's so many talkers, so many people speaking, so much noise. And so we ask you this morning to cut through it all with your voice from your word. Speak to us this morning. And we pray, Lord, give us an unusual ability to listen, to lean in, to not be distracted. If our attention spans have been trained by one-minute reels, if our ability to, to tune in has been trained by commercial interruptions, if, if for some reason, Lord, we have become people unable to sustain thought and argument and detail, would you even now supernaturally reverse all of that? so that we can listen to you, so that we can listen to your word, so that we can really profit from what thus saith the Lord and have our minds shaped by it and have our hearts shaped by it and have our lives, Lord, shaped by it. Shape us, head, heart, and hands, by your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who are new to Anacostia River Church, we have had a practice since we launched as a church in 2015. And that practice is every year at the beginning of the year, the first five weeks of the year, uh, we have a topical series of sermons that are designed to kind of refocus us on who we are and on our calling in the neighborhood. Now normally we do a series on what we call our five M's. Um, these are sort of our objectives as a church or our strategies as a church. They're taken from the book of Titus. And those five M's are um, spreading the message of the gospel, showing mercy to our neighbors, um, supporting each other in maturity, maturing in Christ, um, seeking to multiply, that is to plant other churches and um, to, to train up other leaders that we send out for gospel work. And then number five, sending missionaries. So normally we would have a, a sermon for each of those M's and we would think about where we are in our mission as a church and the implementation of those strategies. It's kind of our State of the Union uh, series each year. But this morning we're going to do a similar thing but not on our five M's. This year we're going to focus on our mission statement as a church. We've never done a series on our mission statement. We've done a series, as I said, every year on our five M's. We've walked through our church covenant. We've walked through our statement of faith. But our mission statement has, has gone without exposition. And that's what we're going to do these next, these next five weeks. We're going to sort of break down our mission statement um, and, and preach from the scripture why we have that particular mission. We've called this series Embracing the Mission. And the series goal is that we want to help every member of ARC move along a commitment continuum, a mission continuum, until we're all at the point where we fully embrace and are fully equipped to fulfill our mission. So we recognize in a room like this, I think this really came to us, me, Dennis, and Ashley, we're having a meeting thinking about some training stuff we wanted to do in the, in, with the congregation. And every time we thought we had an idea, we were thinking about the audiences, and we're like, well, this group of members came recently, or this group of members have this quality or that quality. And we realized, we're like, oh, you know what? We all entered the stream at different points. 
And so we all have more or less of the DNA of the church based upon when we sort of entered. So actually what we probably need to do is go back to our mission and then sort of give the church a steady IV drip of our mission so that we're all sort of embracing what we're called to as a church and moving along this continuum. And so we want to move folks from um, these four things. This is how we sort of thought about it. Uh, we have some members here who have not yet embraced our mission. Like, I've never even heard the mission statement, right? And are, are not equipped to help us complete it. And we have some members here who have not embraced the mission, but you've had good discipleship at other churches and in your spiritual background. You actually are, are, are ready. You're equipped uh, to do the work of the ministry with us. You just need to understand what we are about in terms of our mission. Then we have folks who have embraced the mission who say, yeah, I hear the call um, to sort of enroll in this and to play a part in this, but I need some equipping. Whether that's living in uh, the neighborhood or whether that's, you know, a particular kind of ministry, uh, I need some equipping. And then at the end of the continuum, where we all want to be, is we want to be fully embracing the mission, understanding it, committed to it, and fully equipped to do what the Lord has called us to do as a church and as individual Christians. Now, as we move along that continuum, uh, you might be helped to think through four questions that, that prompt us in that continuum. So if you say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm not sure I embrace the mission. I'm not sure I'm equipped. The question to ask yourself is, why am I here? Why am I here? What's bringing me here? What would keep me here? What would root me here? Maybe you just saw the sign out front and you came in and you don't really know what the church is about. And so you got questions. That's cool. We're glad you're here. You might even be a member of this church, though, right? And you're like, I, I'm not sure. I, I came for the singing, you know, not the mission. We need to ask ourselves, why am I here then? Number two, if you've not embraced the mission, but you're one of those persons who are equipped, you might ask yourself the question, why am I holding back? Why am I holding back? I've got things to give in service to the Lord, in the work of his ministry. Why am I on the bench? Put me in, coach. Why am I holding back? Number three, if we are embracing the mission but we're not equipped, the key question might be, what do I need? I get it. I'm on board. I want to do this thing together as God's family, uh, but I feel like I'm missing some things. What do I need? What do I need to put in my tool belt in order to be equipped for the work of mission? And number four, those folks who are embraced and equipped, is there anything in the way? Do we need to get some barriers out of your way? We need to create some policy or, or some practice, whatever. Uh, what's in the way, if anything, with you being all that God has called you to be with us as a church on mission? So what's our mission statement? Our mission as a church, everybody together, we exist. Oh, y'all reading it? Oh, man, look at y'all. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. Now, we're going to work through that statement, uh, as I said, in a five-part series. Here's the series outline. Today, we're going to be thinking about the fact that we exist. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be thinking about what it means to glorify God and to aim our lives at God's glory. Then we'll be thinking in sermon number three about making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Number four, we'll be into our sort of uh, theology of place from the four corners of the block. So we have a real neighborhood focus as a church in our mission. And then number five, we'll be thinking about the globe. We want to be world Christians. We'll be thinking about what it means to also uh, impact the four corners of the globe. And there are a couple of members here who have very graciously and kindly pointed out to me that globes don't have corners. It's a figure of speech, family, <laughs> right? To the ends of the earth, right? Um, and so we're going to be walking through our mission statement with the Bible, unpacking these things, uh, and trying to, as a congregation, get a fresh embrace of what God has called us to do in the world. You with me? So we begin this morning with we exist. Now, that's an amazing spiritual and physical reality. The fact that we even exist at all. We're a young church. We'll be nine years old on April the 5th. Right? Amen. Amen. And there are some churches that had been around long before us and churches that began after us that are no longer here. See, I realize, and, and maybe you realize, that our existence is something that you could take for granted. Last year for which there is data on church closings is 2019-2020, right before the pandemic. LifeWay Research tells us that in that year, 4,500 churches closed in the United States. Only 3,000 were planted. So we're minus 1,500 on that. But it's more than just the, the story of church closings. It's more than just those raw numbers. The Brookings Institute, downtown D.C. here, did a research study. They were concerned about the role of some churches, particularly black churches and black communities, um, the role that some churches play in public health kinds of issues. They were thinking about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in particular, and they were thinking about the role that the church played in helping people get vaccinated, in helping people get information, et cetera. And they were saying, hey, what is the impact of the closing of churches on neighborhoods like that? So they did a, a study. They looked at data from 2013 to 2019 in New York City. And they focused on New York City, and they focused on church closings, and this is what they found, that most of the church closings were happening in the neighborhoods with the most black folks. This is why the Creek Collective exists. This is why we exist where we exist. Because honestly, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's evil intent, but honestly, unless people are clear on mission, and unless their mission includes neighborhoods that are quote-unquote undesirable, all the churches that will be started will be started in the new, slick, hipster, gentrified neighborhoods. And neighborhoods that have had a history of depending upon the local church, not just for health care kinds of things, but for a lot of things, and most importantly, for gospel things, those neighborhoods will go unserved and will be increasingly underserved. Let's bring it from New York City to Washington, D.C. Just this past week, Sister Coley sent me an article in the Washington Post or one of the local papers uh, about a church that, that you all know and have heard of, church right over on Minnesota Avenue. It's a church 
building property that we were looking at a couple of years ago and trying to acquire. It's a Presbyterian congregation that's almost 140 years old, long history in this neighborhood. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, or no, actually would have been back in June. Back in June, the Presbytery took over that church, which had declined to about 15 members, mostly senior citizens, and the Presbytery, this administration commission of the Presbytery, decided to disband that congregation. They haven't met since before the pandemic. It appears they won't resume meeting now after the pandemic. And their story is like a lot of stories in our neighborhood of churches vanishing, no longer existing. Before we even get to our text, I want us to have some deeper appreciation for the basic fact that when you drove into this parking lot this morning, there was a congregation here, a church here, meeting, praising, praying, and now preaching. If you came just before or during COVID, then you, you know how something like that can disrupt the life of a church, can unsettle and shake all things up, even in them, sadly. If you were here when we first started, you, you know what the early grind was, setting up chairs, taking them down, setting up sound systems, taking them down, uh, being worn out with the, with the grind of, of church planting. You know those early services over at Orr Elementary School, the, the first service, wondering if anybody would come, shocked that people came. Then two Sundays later, you know, the, the numbers cut in half because half the people who came the first Sunday were just coming to wish you well, then going back to their own church. Uh, you know what it's like, that we shouldn't take our we shouldn't take our life with church for granted, and we shouldn't think of our life together as a church in merely natural terms. What's happening here is supernatural, and we want to see that from the scripture. So turn with me in the Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Uh, we're going to be considering this well-known conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to be thinking about this passage of Scripture um, primarily in terms of what it tells us about our existence as a church. We do not exist in our own strength. We exist because of three things, and this is our outline. We exist because of divine revelation. We exist because of divine revelation. We'll see that in verses 13 to 15, or 17, excuse me. We exist, number two, because of divine promise, because of a divine promise. We'll see that in verse 18. And we exist, number three, because of divine power, divine power, particularly the power to communicate with heaven. We'll see that in verse 19. So that's our outline, divine revelation, divine promise, and divine power. And as we work through this sermon, I hope God causes us to rejoice with joy that we exist as his church. Look with me, Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you 
say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We exist because of divine revelation. So we see in verses 13 and 17, our, our text opens with Jesus talking to his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Some years ago, Chris and I had the privilege of doing a, a, a tour of Israel and, and a study of, of various sites in Israel. And one of the places we went to was Caesarea Philippi. And it was striking to look at this text standing there because in Caesarea Philippi, there is this uh, cliffside there, massive cliffside. And in the side of that cliff are these alcoves, these little uh, cubby holes and shelves where people would come and, and place their idols and worship their idols, make offerings there, burn incense there, things of that sort. And so it's a place where this sort of pagan site of idol worship of all types. And so you can imagine Jesus standing near or in front of this wall with all of these idols up there asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And you see in the text, the disciples are like, yeah, we, we keep our pulse on the, on the people and what the people think. They got various theories. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. You know, they, people got different ideas. Notice Jesus' next question. He asks, who do these people say is this, the son of man is? which is a title that goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has this vision of the Ancient of Days, of God sitting on a throne, and one like the Son of Man coming to him and receiving honor and worship and power and authority uh, over the nations. It's a picture of the Messiah. It's a picture of his divinity, really. And Jesus first asked about the Son of Man. Then he asked, who do you say I am? He asked not about the people in the second question, but about the disciples, who they thought he was. Now, right away, it should be clear to us that to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ is not to take an opinion poll about who he is. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ is to be certain about who he is to know the truth about who he is, to know it personally, and to be committed to it, all right? Jesus ain't out here interested in somebody's pet theory, somebody's alternative ideas about who he is. He's interested in drawing people to the truth about himself. And so he cuts through, don't worry about the people now, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the key question. And in verse 16, Peter speaks up. Peter speaks up to speak on behalf of all the disciples, and Peter answers, notice, with two comments. He says, you are the Christ, number one, the Son of the living God, number two. Christ is not Jesus' last name. H is not his middle initial, right? 
Christ is a title. It's connected to the Old Testament idea of the Messiah, of an anointed one, a Savior who would save his people. Israel had been expecting this Messiah for centuries. They had been yearning for deliverance and wondering who will be the deliverer that God has promised to us as a people. And indeed, God had promised them a deliverer, but not in the way that they thought. Not initially, not in terms of a political deliverer. God had promised to send someone who would deliver them most fundamentally from their sin and the consequences of their sin. This is even why his name is Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel tells Mary, you shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so when Jesus asks, who is the Son of Man, he's asking them, do they really recognize the Messiah? Do they really recognize the Savior? Do they recognize the one who has come to rescue them from their sins and to bring them safely to God? Peter gets it right for the first time. That's you, Jesus. You are the Christ. But then Peter says more. He says that Jesus is also the Son of the living God. Now, Son of God is a title that's used a couple of times in the Scripture of of different persons. Sometimes kings are called sons of God to sort of magnify their majesty. But here now, Peter is using this phrase in a unique way because Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. He's He's not the Son of God in some honorific title sense. He is the Son of God in his essence. That's his being. That's his person. He is the second person in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now Peter has come to recognize this. You are uniquely and essentially the Son of the living God, which was a tremendous statement to make for a devoted Jewish person who thought that God is one, who, who, who did not understand God to be triune. Breaking into Peter's mind is something far more wondrous than he had ever, ever thought about before. That the one standing before him was not just Savior, but also Son, also God. You are the Son of the living God. Prior to that, no one had really expected that God himself would come to save them. This God himself wrapped in human flesh. But here's the point. This was not because Peter was so smart. Peter did not arrive at this because he took a philosophy 301 class in college. This was not because Peter was uniquely insightful and attentive as a student of Jesus. Jesus responds in verse 17 and tells Peter, boy, you blessed. You are blessed, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. He uses his whole name. You know, when people start using your whole name, they're they really excited, right? Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you have just had God the Father divinely open your eyes and reveal to you something you had never seen before, something you had never known before. 
knowing that this is who Jesus is, comprehending that, understanding that, receiving that, comes by revelation, not education. Comes by the work of God in the human soul. Now, even the few lines of dialogue in verses 15 to 17 are giving us increasing revelation of Jesus. The Bible is wonderful this way. The more you stare at it, the more it shows you. So just look with me. Skim this again. In verse 13, Jesus asks, who is the Son of Man? Then in verse 15, he says, who you say I am? Verse 16, Peter says the Christ. Verse 17, the Son of the living God. Verse, or verse 16, verse 17, Jesus doesn't even blush at the fact that Peter just called him the Son of the living God. He just starts saying, my Father in heaven. As you go through these three verses, you're getting an increasingly clear picture of who Jesus is. Put it to you this way. As we read these three verses, God is revealing to you and I who Jesus is. We need this revelation if we are going to be God's church. And God is so kind. In the Bible, he just litters these breadcrumbs of identity so that we might follow those breadcrumbs to Jesus and see God in his glory. We exist because of divine revelation. It's the only explanation for why we believe. God opened our closed eyes. God gave us new hearts instead of the dead ones that we had. And this divine revelation is the only explanation for why such a diverse people as you would spend so much time together on a Sunday. And not just Sunday, but spend so much time together eating dinner in one another's homes and going out together in fellowship. It's the only explanation for why we would share our resources together in worship and in giving and why we would commit to a common mission. We've all had our eyes open the same way to see Jesus. And that's changed everything. It's changed everything. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you need God, the Holy Spirit, to give you this revelation. To open your eyes and to open your heart to see Jesus for who he really is and to receive him for who he really is. Have you, have you received God's revelation this way? If, if you haven't, the bad news is you're not yet a Christian. You are still in your sins and you're in danger of God's judgment. The good news is you can be a Christian and you can escape God's judgment. You can escape his wrath coming upon the world and you can receive not just his forgiveness, but you can receive his judgment that you are righteous and you are his. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, number one, confess your sins. Confess that you, like me, like everybody in this room, all of us are sinners. Agree with God that that's true of you, that you have not obeyed him, that you are not perfect in your righteousness, that you have broken his law. Confess it with a genuine heart. Then number two, maybe pray something like this. I've always loved these testimonies where people sometimes get to the point where they say something like this, God, if you are real, please show me. It's a fantastic prayer. 
It's a fantastic prayer. Confess your sin and say, God, you said your son is the savior of the world who would take away the sins of the world, who would take away my sin, who would give me his righteousness and bring me into your kingdom with eternal life. If that's true, show me. (laughs) If that's true, open my eyes to see Jesus for who he is, to believe on him genuinely. You you promised a new heart, a new life. You, You promised a kingdom, God. If you be God, if you be real, show me. I think the Lord loves that prayer. I don't think the Lord is offended by that prayer. I don't think the Lord is offended by unbelief. I don't think the Lord is offended by doubt. I think the Lord loves to prove that he is God, that he is real, that he saves, that he gives a new life, that he gives a new kingdom. I pray that prayer. It ain't got to be fancy. In the Bible, there are people who pray prayers like this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Bible says they went home justified. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can be if you would call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ask him to reveal himself and in the process to save you. It's a prayer he delights to answer. And and, and maybe you say, well, if I do that, how, how do I know that my eyes have been opened? How do I know that, that, that I have received that revelation? What's it like? It's kind of hard to describe. The best I could do for an illustration is, how many of you have been to the eye doctor, been to the optometrist, right? You go to the eye doctor, and you, you go in there thinking that you see all right. At least I did. I thought everybody saw the way I saw Christy kept telling me, you need to get your eyes checked. I'm like, can't nobody read that sign? You know, sign way down there. You know, you're driving on the highway and you're looking for your exit and you see your exit as you pass it. It finally come into vision, right? That was me. So I go to the eye doctor I, and he do what they always do. They sit you in the room, they put the chart over there on the wall and they say, read the bottom line. You close one eye, you squint, you say, Q. No, 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 no. That's a C. That's a C. C. And you try to make your way through those lines. And, and then what does he do? He comes, he says, let me, let me put these over. You put the lenses over your eyes, right? And he start switching the lenses like a viewfinder, right? He's shifting them and, and getting them right. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, that bottom line is like it's in 84-point font, right? What had been very blurry and 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 hard to decipher, when you get that lens on your eyes, all of a sudden, it all becomes clear. You see the bottom line. You see all the lines. You see things you didn't even know were in the room. I didn't know that was over there. When you look at the eye doctor, like, why are you so close to me? You know, (laughs) everything gets magnified and clear. And there's this wonderful sense of newness and this wonderful sense of joy that I can see. That's what it's like. You, you remember the blind man that, that Jesus healed and, um, and, 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 and people were questioning him about his healing and why he was healed this way or that way. And the man said, look, I don't know nothing about all of that. All I know is I was once blind and now I see. I, I was once blind and now I see, right? And that's how it is to get this revelation of Jesus Christ. You didn't see him. You thought the world was clear, but it was actually kind of fuzzy. Your morality was fuzzy. Your life was fuzzy. Your decision-making was fuzzy. But then you see Jesus, and everything gets really clear. 
And you have this sense of newness and this, this, this sense of joy of, oh my God, I can see. The church is built on this kind of revelation. Because without it, we can't see. But with it, everything is different. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's what God wants you to receive. The ability to see his son and seeing his son to see everything clearly and differently with newness and joy. Now, ARC, the divine revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the central reason for any church's existence, including ours. The true church is dedicated to the truth of Jesus and dedicated to a person in Jesus Christ who can only be known supernaturally as he opens our eyes to see him. And this revelation of Jesus is so key to our existence as a church that without it, we cease to be a church. We might still meet and call ourselves a church, but if God the Father were driving by and Jesus was coming through and they stepped in here and and we were dedicated to some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets. Hey, we a church. The Father and the Son wouldn't recognize us. I don't know what y'all doing over there, but it ain't what we're doing over here is what they would say. To lose this at the heart of who we are would be to lose ourselves and the whole kingdom. This is why we try to be careful with church membership. We try to make sure every member of the church has received this revelation of Jesus Christ for themselves. We have a membership class where we talk about these things. That's the first step in trying to be careful and to care for people's souls is the membership class. Time to ask questions, to go through what we believe, to open the scripture, to show people. And then we follow that with a membership interview. So when we sit down one-on-one and and we get to know your story. We ask you basically two questions. Um, how did you come to know Jesus? How did you receive this revelation? And in 60 seconds or so, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? We want to try to make sure that persons who are members of this church have a personal experience of conversion, of salvation, and are able to articulate that experience by, by, by articulating the gospel. Well, after that, there's a third thing that we do to try to make sure our membership has integrity and we preserve the revelation of Christ. That is, we ask people to commit to the church covenant. The church covenant is just our way of summarizing how it is we live out this revelation, how we live for Jesus, how we live lives that we hope increasingly look like Jesus's. And then finally, from time to time, you have persons who wander away from the covenant, who break the covenant, who who, who break even their profession of faith in unrepentant sin. And if we're unable to restore them, then finally, sometimes we are forced in love to remove them from membership in church discipline. Because we're saying to them, it doesn't look like you've received this revelation based on how you're living. Come back to the way of Christ. Come back to this church. And it's as we do those things that we are attempting to, again, protect this precious and profound spiritual activity of God that he opens the eyes and makes it clear who Jesus is. We exist because of divine revelation. We have no reason to exist without it. 
brings us to our second point. We exist because of Jesus' divine promise. So after Peter says what he says, and Jesus goes, yo, that came from God, that didn't come from you. Verse 18, he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus gives Simon a nickname. Most of us only know him as Peter. We forgot his name was Simon, right? He gives him this nickname right here in this text. Peter means stone or rock. And then the Lord promises two things. First, he promises to establish or build his church. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, notice right away, the church is built on the rock of Peter's confession. It's not built on Peter, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. If that were the case, then the church would have crumbled from the time that Peter denied Jesus, or certainly by the time Peter's, of Peter's death. I think the context makes it clear that Jesus deals with this revelation given to Peter. Right? So the church has never preached Peter. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, and resurrected. Listen, beloved, Peter didn't preach Peter. We are in the book of 1 Peter right now. What does he tell us in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8? He says all of us are like living stones, right? So he's telling us that the fact that Jesus called him a stone ain't even special to him. You a stone too. All of us are like living stones. However, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the church, is Jesus Christ. He's the real rock. He's the real stone on which the church is built. And the profession of Christ as Lord, the Son of the living God, as Christ, that's the rock. And that's what Jesus is building the church on. Can I point out one more thing from this text? Notice in this divine promise that Jesus is building his church. One person heard me. He said, I will build my church. Jesus ain't building Sabidi's church. Jesus ain't building the pastor's church. Jesus ain't building the deacon's church. Jesus ain't building the church according to the members' specifications and preferences. This ain't HGTV. You ain't picking out countertops. You ain't picking out drapes. You ain't remodeling the house. Jesus building his church. Based on the testimony of him as Messiah and Savior. King Jesus is doing his thing. He builds the church, not us. He runs the church, not us. And the existence of ARC and every gospel church is a direct outcome of Jesus keeping this promise made over 2,000 years ago to build his church. When you and I walked into this assembly, you walked into Jesus' fulfilled promise. We need to feel that. We need to understand that. You walked into supernatural promise-keeping activity. Now there's a second promise. He promised not just to establish the church. Secondly, the Lord promises to advance his church. I get that from the last part of verse 18. 
See it there? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus builds, the devil can't resist or destroy. Gates in the ancient world provided defense to a city. If, if an enemy approached a city, the alarm would go up. The people in the villages outside the city walls, they would try to hustle into the city. Then the gates would be closed and would be barred. And between the walls and the gates, that was a primary defense against an attacking army. It was used to withstand the enemy. Now, in this text, Jesus is comparing the church to the marching army attacking the city, attacking the gates of hell, attacking Satan's city. And he's telling us now that the church that he builds will advance against the gates of hell, and the gates won't hold. The gates won't withstand. The gates won't keep him out. He will be rescuing from the flames souls that were lost in sin and reclaiming them for himself. Through the church, he will plunder Satan's captivity, and he will lead them into liberty. Ain't a thing the devil can do about it. That's his promise. The enemy cannot withstand what Jesus builds. ARC, this is about you. This is about us. It's about every gospel preaching church. We are not only a miracle of divine revelation, we are also mighty through divine promise. For these nine years, the gates of hell have not been able to stand against this little gospel preaching out church or outpost that Jesus is building. We exist and we are mighty through the promise of Jesus Christ. He said, I'll build it and I will advance it. And if you ever wonder what's going on at church, don't think about the little petty things that might be happening in somebody's life. If you ever wonder what's going on at church, think about this promise that the risen Savior is actively building this thing and advancing this thing against the powers of hell. Now, to embrace the mission, we must start, I think, y'all can talk about this over lunch or talk with me after the service, I think we got to start by embracing the supernatural reality of the church itself. Jesus is building something here. Jesus is conquering and plundering hell here. The Father is giving divine revelation to people here. And we got to be excited about the fact that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are doing in us and through us as a church what he promised to do when he promised to build and advance his church. That's got to excite us. We got to be aware of that. And we got to embrace that. And, 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 and the question becomes, well, how do we embrace that? How do we embrace that practically? Let me give you a couple applications here. Maybe one application. Just for example, some of us are struggling with serving in the ministries of the church. Already, some of us, oh, Lord, here we go. Got the guilt. Here come, here come the guilt trip. Bro, I don't feel called to children's ministry. Man, I don't, I don't rock with the youth. I don't do youth ministry. I ain't got time for the PSA team. See, already we're thinking very naturally. 
right? Some of us are struggling with that. I wonder if we struggle with serving among and with God's people. I wonder if we struggle with that sometimes because we've lost sight of the divine nature of the church, the spiritual nature of the church. I wonder if we've started to think of our local church as a kind of volunteer service organization. And if we think of it that way, one consequence is that we can slip into deciding then, if it's a volunteer volunteer organization, whether to serve the mission based on convenience or based on our interests. If If it lines up with something I happen to be interested in, then I might get involved. Or if I got time or whatever, if I don't have to rearrange my life, in any way, significant way, I can sort of plug it in here, then then I I might get involved. It's all so natural, fleshly, and worldly a way to think about God's church. See, in the natural, we begin to think that our ministries are either unimportant or all-important, right? Right? So, you know, the person who heads the ministry, they, they come up, they make an announcement, they make an appeal, and they, they are twisting your arm trying to get you to serve because it's really important. It's almost all important that we do this thing, right? And meanwhile, some of us are sitting out there like, oh, this is so unimportant. Why don't you sit down? We heard this announcement last January. We know you need volunteers. Stop pressing us. Right? Maybe you're not as crass as that, but... That's basically what some of us are thinking, right? So then we're pushing and goading and pulling and uh, coercing and enticing and influencing and trying to squeeze a little juice out of that grape to get God's people to do what God's people ought to do. But if we embrace the spiritual and the supernatural work that's going on in God's church, and if we embrace God's promise to build and advance his church, then we can pick all the ministries of the church, the youth ministry, the children's ministry, the PSA teams, whatever, we can put them all in their proper perspective. So serving in these ministries becomes neither unimportant nor all-important. We begin to serve in the church with the awareness that to serve is to participate in the supernatural activities of God. Activities that he's using to crash the gates of hell and to plunder the domain of Satan. And we get to do that. I watched a documentary recently. It was on a high school football team, Christian Christian school um, down in Shreveport, Louisiana. That's what uh, interested me in it. I texted Jahil. I said, yo, you know this pastor? He's like, oh, yeah, man, that dude's a man of prayer. It's an older pastor with Pentecostal Church down there. They got a school, and um, he used to coach them. When he coached them before, they won state championships. He retired from coaching. The program started struggling. So the documentary is all about him taking over the program again and coaching these kids and, and telling the stories of the kids and things of this sort. And they're not having the season they want to have. They're about 500. They're kind of mid uh, in, the, in the season. They lose a game that they had hoped to win uh, in order to go to the state playoffs. And uh, afterwards, they got this huddle with all the football players there. They're kind of downcast a little bit, so he's lifting them and cheering them. 
And he says to them, right at the end of the huddle, he says, says to them, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of work to do. And that's where most of our thinking stops. What struck me was the whole football team very loudly and joyfully started jumping and bouncing and all of them said, and we get to do it. And we get to do it. The sense of privilege and excitement and yes, there's a lot out there for us to do, but praise be to God, we get to do it. Right? They, they understood something spiritually. They understood something spiritually. And I thought to myself, man, God's church needs that, that perspective. Yes, there's a lot to do. Yes, there's a lot undone. Yes, there's a lot that's raggedy sometimes. Yes, there's a lot that's neglected. There's a lot of work to do. Yes, but this is the church Jesus is building. And we get to do it with him. What a privilege. If we think that way, I think it changes our entire perspective on the church. We exist because of divine revelation, and we exist because of divine promise, and we get to participate in that promise as we do the work of the Lord. If you find it hard to embrace the mission of a local church, this church or any church, you got to ask yourself, is it because you're thinking of the church as something less than the supernatural work of God? Maybe the issue with regard to serving isn't really serving. Maybe the issue begins with seeing the church the wrong way, with the fuzziness of someone who needs glasses and hasn't gotten them yet. Maybe we need to refocus on the fact that we are here because God has brought us here and God is building us into this church. We exist, number three, because of divine communication or divine power. Verse 19, Jesus goes on to say there, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Heaven. Here's another one of those verses where there's been centuries of debate about what Jesus means here. The Roman Catholic Church sees the keys as the ability of the church really to give or not give salvation. Rome long taught that there was no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. But that claims too much. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to the Pope. Now, many Protestants see the keys here as symbols of authority, yes, to admit and dismiss members of the church. They relate the keys to the practice of church discipline. Look with me in Matthew chapter 18. So just flip over one page or so. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, where we see this idea of binding and loosing, loosening mentioned again. Jesus says there, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed 
in heaven. So Protestants have understood this idea of the keys and the ability to bind and loose uh, that have to do with membership and discipline and correction in the church. I think the Protestant understanding is the better understanding of the keys and the authority to bind and loose. It's not an ability to give salvation. I don't have that ability. I'm not your savior. I'm not the mediator between God and man. No other human being is. Christ is. But it is an authority given by Christ to his church to take care of one another and to ensure that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, however you resolve the interpretation of this, I, 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 the thing I really want us to notice is that Jesus gives this power or this authority to the church that he builds. The Lord gives a power to bind or lose. And that power, notice, is to be exercised on earth, but it communicates with heaven. It's ratified between earth and heaven. Now, verse 18, there are two ways to possibly translate that verse. The way we have it in the ESV, for example, says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. You may, if you've got a study Bible, have a little marginal note there that gives you another reading of those, that verb. And it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So the communication between the church on earth and the Lord in heaven might be read one of two ways. If we take the first translation, then, then the verse suggests that what the church does on earth determines what heaven does. We bind or loose, heaven says, bet, I'll bind and loose. Heaven ratifies or cosigns what the church does. If we take the second translation, then the verse teaches not that the church determines what heaven does, but the church reflects what heaven does. Heaven has already decided. Now, we act in agreement with what heaven has decided in binding and loosing. Either way you translate the verb, there's a conversation going on. That's the marvelous thing. We can get lost in the centuries of debate, but, but see the plain thing in this text. Jesus says, I'm building a church, and it's the kind of church that will stand in communication and agreement with heaven itself, such that whatever is bound in heaven is bound on earth. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Heaven is going to be reflected in the body of Christ on earth. We're going to be co-signing each other. Now, some of y'all don't know what co-signing is. You got good credit. You ain't never had to have one. Chris and I married 32 years. Praise be to God. Hey, amen. Amen. And when we first got married, we were juniors in college. Broke it at a two-legged dog. But we were in lieu, right? As we get married and we get our first apartment, and really, we, we ain't really got two nickels to rub together. And, and we're looking at the prospect of eating and sleeping on the floor. Anybody know about that? And so we go to our folks, and our folks say, we want to help you, and get you started in your married life and go to your folks and say, what you need? Well, we need some furniture. And um, my mom agrees to help us to get a bedroom, uh, bedroom set. Her dad agrees to help to furnish the, the living room and the, and, the, and the dining room. 
And so we visit my mom in, in our hometown, and, and we go to pick up the, the furniture set or to look around. We go to this furniture store called Kimbrell's. It's, you know, it's been in my hometown for decades and decades. And my mama walks in, and the owner of the store looks up and sees her, and his face lights up. He says, Francis, I ain't seen you in a long time. He said, what you want? You know you good. Anything you want, go ahead and get Like that? <laughs> we go to her hometown. Go to the furniture store in her hometown. Go there with her dad. Her dad walks in the store. The owner of the store looks at her, sa- her dad and says, Mr. Felicity, you know your word good here. You can get anything you want. And we look at each other. Man, we want to grow up to be like that. But right now, we want that bedroom suit. And we want that, <laughs> that, that bedroom suit. They were co-signing for us. We didn't have nothing. We didn't have no credit. We didn't have no money. We went in there broke as a joke. But because they were co-signing, anything we wanted, we had. That's how I think about this text. The church is weak. It's small. It's broke. It is not powerful in and of itself. But because it's in communication with God in heaven and because God is ratifying things and determining things, we walk into the world and get what we want. Because that's what our relationship is like with God. We exist in this divine communion, this divine communication with God so that whatever he vouches for, we have. And isn't this the promise of Scripture? If we ask anything according to his will, we have our requests. Over and over again, the Bible is bidding us to come to God, to ask of God, to seek God, to let him know what's on our heart, what we want, etc. And God is over and over again saying, Nothing you ask is too hard for me. I walk in the store and the man say, it's actually your store. Do what you want to do. That's the God we have. That's the relationship we have with him as a church. How do we apply this? Well, beloved, I think as we close, not only should you and I be, if we're Christians, members of a local church, and not only should we rejoice and embrace the fact that it exists, you and I should should learn to walk in agreement with each other and with heaven. There's power in agreement. There's power in unity. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4.3, that we should do everything to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A disagreeing, squabbling, arguing church is a contradiction to this picture of a church in Matthew 16, 19, that stands in agreement with heaven itself. How are we going to agree with heaven if we can't agree with each other? Now, don't get me wrong. Churches don't always get it right. But when a church exists by the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Savior and Son of God, when a church exists because of the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to build an advanced church, and when a church is standing in communion with heaven, communicating, binding and loosing, acting together with heaven, that's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. That's what you want to embrace. And the mission of that church becomes a mission worthy of your investment of time, talent, and treasure. That's what you want to give yourself to. And what a glorious thing to give yourself to. And it's especially worthy of your prayer 
we would be on our knees individually and together seeking the Lord in prayer. So let me exhort you again to make Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock a priority. Come at 9.15 if that's when you get here. We ain't judging you. We're praying. Our heads are bowed. We're talking to heaven. Come jump in on the conversation. Seek the Lord in that way. Or encourage you to make, not or, and, 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 double click, and. Make the members' meetings of the church a priority. That's the other place where we very intentionally are praying together as a church for the will of the Lord in matters that matter. That's where we are exercising the keys, binding and loosing in membership and discipline. That's where we're beseeching heaven to loose what we want loose and to bind what we want bound. Make those priorities that we might be in agreement together with each other and more importantly, we might be in agreement with heaven. So let's end. The most amazing part of our mission statement is the first two words. We exist. Packed in those two words are revelation, promise, and power. Now don't get me wrong. I don't always keep these realities in mind. The days get long. The grind gets hard, the neighborhood be tripping, sins get wearisome, y'all get hard-headed. Even for me as the pastor, the church can lose its shine sometimes. But when I'm happiest and, and when I'm most excited, it's usually connected to remembering that this is Jesus' work that he is building his church, and it is advancing against the gates of hell. When I'm happiest, I am marveling at the fact, I really am, I'm marveling at the fact that we exist, right? That's why our anniversaries are so big to me. I remember when this was just an idea I thought in my mind. And I remember the early meetings, interest meetings, where you weren't sure anybody was going to join you in this work. And I remember the anxiety before the Lord of, Lord, how are we, how are we going to fund this? How are we going to do this, et cetera? And I, I remember the planning meetings and, and folks stepping into roles saying, now, I have never led children's ministry. I've never done this, but I'll, I'll try. And the, and the sort of low-key uncertainty of, you know, is, is this going to work? And I remember the Lord providing. And I remember the Lord working in your lives and mine. I remember the things that he's brought us out of. I remember the conflict and the strife, some of which none of you know about. And I remember God being faithful. I remember God being good. I remember God saying, stop looking at their faces. Stop wondering about them. They mine. I'm building this church, not you. And I remember the first, the first weddings, the first missionaries supported, the, the first anniversaries. I remember all the firsts and trying to hold fast to all the firsts because to me, 
It was an indication God was with us, that he was keeping us, and that he would keep us for as long as he wanted to. The fact that we exist is amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And the fact that he's brought each one of you to be a part of the work that he's building here at Advancing Hope. I mean, each one of you, most of whom I, I, I never even met until I met you here. I think about the goodness of the Lord, I can tell you. Uh, as we come into this year, I hope, I hope, I pray that we would we would shake off all those sort of mundane, ordinary thoughts about who we are and what's going on here. And I, I hope the Lord would allow us to see something of his divine fingerprints on our souls and on our bodies and that we would rejoice that we exist. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you praise that your work shall not be defeated. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We give you praise that you are not only building but advancing your church. And we give you thanks, Lord, for the extreme privilege of being in communication with heaven, binding and loosing, walking in agreement. And we give you thanks that you have revealed your son to us, that we believe in him, that we love him, that we trust him, that we are looking forward to his coming. We give you praise that we know him, and more than that, we are known by him. We look forward to the day when we shall see him face to face, Lord. When all of our warfare is over and there is only complete and final victory in your kingdom. We long for that day. We pray, come quickly. But until then, Lord, help us to marvel, to really marvel that you, the God of the universe, has chosen us and loved us and made us your children. Help us to marvel that you are with us and in us and working through us. Help us to see it. Give us, give us that sight that brings it all into focus for the joy of our souls. And for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.